Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture passage for today is from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. I'm a huge March Madness fan. I don't know about you guys, but especially the opening weekend, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where there's like basketball games from starts at noon all the way to midnight. I am glued to the TV. And this year, as I was watching all the March Madness games, I saw a commercial, maybe you saw it too, a commercial about Jesus, entitled, the tagline at the end, He Gets Us. If you've ever seen the commercials, they, they take these black and white images of the world today, you know, contemporary life, kind of capturing the angst and the, the challenges of modern day life, and they pair those images with a narrative, uh, the good news, that Jesus gets us. Have you seen those commercials? When I first saw them, I confess, my first thought was, oh, that's slick. I wonder who's behind that, right? Like, what, what secret shadow organization put this together, and what's the catch? You know, but I did my research, and I, I, I kind of went to the website, hegetsus.com, and I was actually quite impressed with what I saw there and what I learned there, and, and so if you aren't you know, in the know that, that there's no nefarious group behind this. He gets us. It's a group of Christians, uh, some wealthy Christians who, who asked, who, who began with a question, what would it look like if Jesus was the biggest brand in our communities? And so they put together uh, a campaign, a hundred million dollar marketing campaign uh, they believe that was, they hired a group out of Michigan to kind of put together the messaging. It was market tested and then rolled out during uh, March Madness and kind of leading up now until Easter. Just last night, I was watching a Dodgers game, three different commercial breaks, three different videos. I saw hegetsus.com. And, 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 and if you follow it to the website, what you find there is they even listed all these churches there that if you that if you request prayer, or if you say, I want to learn more about Jesus, you're directed to Bible studies, you're directed to pastors at local churches and congregations that were kind of enlisted in this. The organizers, uh, they, they write that we, our partners include multiple denominational and non-denominational church affiliations, Catholic and Protestant, 
churches of various sizes, ethnicities, languages, and geography. Our goal ultimately is inspiration, not recruitment or conversion. It's an interesting thing that's taking place right now in our midst, in our culture, in our country. Now, there's some legitimate questions that you could ask about this. Last night, as we were watching the Dodgers game, and Margaret, you know, I explained to, to, uh, to my daughter uh, what, what this was and where it came from. She said, does Jesus really need a brand, Dad? I thought, well, that's a good question to ask. A lot of people also ask the question, $100 million. Imagine all the good things that could have been done in Jesus' name with $100 million. And I, I admit those are legitimate questions. But I also will say this, what doesn't seem up for debate is the power, you know, how, how poignant, how, how much these commercials and this message seems to speak to our world today. That Jesus gets us. He walked in our shoes. Born of a teenage mother, lived as a refugee, frustrated with the politics of his day, even betrayed by his friends. He knows our pain. He gets us. It's a powerful and simple message. And as powerful as that message is, and as much as I agree with it, I, today I want to kind of flip it on its head, turn it around, and ask the question, yes, Jesus gets us, but do we get him? That's kind of the question that was driving uh, the story that Joyce just read from, from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is, is, you know, preparing for his entry into Jerusalem. He's just five chapters away in the Gospel of Matthew before his, before his entry into Jerusalem. So Palm Sunday is looming large. But before he goes there, before the final die is cast, he pulls his disciples away to a retreat to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 20 miles north of Galilee. And the driving dominant question of this retreat with his disciples is this, do they get me? Do they understand me? Jesus wants to know. He's traveled with these men. They've gotten up close front seats to, to see him perform miracles, to heal people, to feed 5,000, to walk on the water. They've heard his messages again and again and again, and they've been able to kind of behind the scenes ask him questions to go deep. So Jesus wants to know, do they understand me yet? Do they know who I am? Because to a large degree when you think about it, the continuation of Jesus' ministry beyond his crucifixion and resurrection depends on the disciples understanding who he is. And so he takes them away on retreat, and while they're there together, he asks them the simple question. He says, who do people say that I am? The disciples offer various responses. Some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some people say Jeremiah or another prophet, perhaps. Generally, they kind of acknowledge in the culture of today, there's a lot of confusion about who you are, but everyone says good things. I mean, these are all like, you know, especially Elijah and Jeremiah, they were the quintessential prophets of their day and time. In fact, they were seen as, as heralds, precursors of the coming Messiah someday. So, so the, the people clearly hold Jesus in high esteem, even if they're a little bit confused about who he is. It made me think, well, you know, I wonder how we would answer the question if that was asked to us today. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say Jesus is today? There's an equal amount of confusion in our world today. I mean, some people would say, well, Jesus is a great teacher, right? I mean, a wise person who, who grasped some essential truth about the world and about life and, about, and who communicated that truth in new, creative, and powerful ways. He was a teacher, Others say, no, he was a prophet. 
He was someone who challenged the the, the existing order of society, who was not afraid to speak truth to power. And some people say, no, no, he was kind. He was gentle. They would emphasize that he was a healer, a miracle worker who had compassion on all the people. And I think we could all agree that Jesus was a person of conviction, someone who believed so strongly in his message that he was willing to lay down his life for it. I guess my point is, is even those who don't profess to be Jesus followers today, who want nothing to do with the church, who aren't sure about his divinity or all those kinds of things, they would just the same hold Jesus in high esteem and high regard. He was someone to be admired. But Jesus isn't looking for compliments. He's not digging for praise. He's digging for truth. And the disciples' answers haven't quite gotten what he wants to know, and so he he decides to make the question more personal. He goes from who do people say that I am to who do you say that I am? Because it's not enough just to believe what everyone else believes. It's not enough just to piggyback on, well, what my parents or my friends or my preacher says about Jesus. No, each of us must ultimately confront the question, who do we say Jesus is? And how we answer that question shapes to a large degree who we are. I would contend that it's perhaps the most important question that any of us will ever face in life. Who is Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? What do we believe about him? So when Jesus asked that pointed question, who do you say that I am? There's a moment of awkward silence. I mean, the disciples don't want to get this wrong, right? Like the the risks, the stakes are pretty high. But normally, as it always seems to be, Peter, Simon Peter is the one who speaks forth with boldness. And he declares, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Now let's take a moment and unpack this confession. You are the Messiah. Well, who's the Messiah? The Messiah is a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. You see, in the Old Testament, people and sometimes objects were set aside for God. They were consecrated for a specific purpose. And whenever something was consecrated to God, it was anointed. And in particular, there are three groups of people, kings, priests, and prophets, who were all set aside and anointed to serve God. The the, the Messiah, when it becomes not just a anointed person, but the anointed one, was a belief that there would be one day a king descended from the house of David who would rule over Israel forever. You see the promise going all the way back to King David, one of the first kings, the second king, I guess, of Israel. And at that point in 2 Samuel, God declares to him, the Lord declares to you, that he will establish a house for you, that when your days are over and you, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son And your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That was the promise that was given to David. 
And whenever Israel fell on hard times over the centuries, they would look back at this promise as, you know, God has promised to put someone to establish him forever. And so you see prophets like the prophet Isaiah looking back and claiming this promise as a source of hope for the people. These are familiar words. We read them every Christmas. Isaiah chapter nine, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For you have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And here's the messianic part. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign, where? On David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See, this is the promise that has sustained the people of Israel for centuries, from the Babylonian exile all the way to the Roman occupation. They have clung to this hope that one day God would send the Messiah who would reunite the tribes, who, who would restore the glory of the nation, who would usher in a kingdom of justice and peace that would last forever. They've been holding on to this hope. And Peter is so bold in this moment to declare face to face with Jesus. That's you. That's who you are. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the one that we have been waiting for. Now, Peter doesn't quite grasp the totality of what he just said. We'll see that in just a moment. But let's not skip over that when Peter says these words, Jesus is elated. He is filled with joy. He says to, to Peter, Simon, son of Judah, this, blessed are you, Simon, son of Judah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and bone, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Pretty high praise that Jesus gives to Simon Peter. For, For starters, he gives him a brand new name. Up until that moment, he had been Simon. And now all of a sudden, Jesus, you are not Simon anymore. You are Peter, which in Greek means you are the rock. Not to be confused with Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Like, you are Peter, you are the rock. And here's what's so powerful about that, is that up until that moment in history, there was no record, no record whatsoever of anyone named Peter. No one was going around being called the rock. No Dwayne Johnsons. It didn't exist as a name in Greek and Aramaic until this moment. The only person that was ever called the rock in the Old Testament was God himself. Going back to 2 Samuel, you have this declaration, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. Psalm 18, who is a rock except our God? Deuteronomy 32, he is the rock. His work is perfect again and again and again in the Old Testament. Who is a rock? God is. 
And now, now Jesus says to Peter, you are rock, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, Jesus isn't elevating Peter to divine status in this moment. Peter is not Jesus. It's clear from scripture, Jesus is the rock. He's the cornerstone, the foundation on which the church will be built, the cornerstone in which all things hold together. Peter is not Jesus, but what Peter does is he gets who Jesus is. And on this confession, Jesus will build his church. That's been the confession from the beginning of what, what it means to be a Christian, to be one of those called out, to be a part of the church. It's simply the confession that you are Messiah, the son of the living God. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, for if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the confession, the foundational confession of Christian identity that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah. And with that simple confession, we're made new. Our sins are forgiven. We die to our sins. We're raised to new life by God's grace. We're given the gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to be the sign and seal of that new identity. It all begins with a simple confession, you are Messiah. Jesus is Lord. And the first person to say that is Peter. Now, yes, he makes that confession, but as we'll soon see, Peter didn't fully understand what that meant. Because no sooner does Peter make this confession and Jesus affirm it, that then he instructs his disciples, tell no one that, that, that I am the Messiah. Don't, don't let anyone know this. Why does he say this? If it's such an important confession, why doesn't he want people to know that he's the Messiah? Well, the problem is that at this point in the story, the disciples are still thinking of a different kind of Messiah. What that word means to them is different from what it means to Jesus because the disciples are thinking about the earthly kingdom of Israel. They're thinking about a Messiah who's going to sweep out all the Romans, who's going to usher in, you know, a, a reign of glory for Israel, restore the former glory of the nation. And if they had gone out and preached Jesus as that kind of Messiah, what they would have done is they would have incited a, a bloody and costly rebellion in Jesus' name, and that's not what he wants at all. Before they can preach who Jesus is, they first have to understand what the Messiah is supposed to be about. And so Jesus begins to instruct them. Again, reading from Matthew, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now Peter is listening to this. And he just said, you are the Messiah. You know, you are the one we've been waiting for. 
And he, he can't quite put these things together that how Jesus can be the Messiah and how he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. It doesn't make any sense to him. So he pulls Jesus aside and he says, never, Lord, never shall these things happen to you. And then comes the terrible rebuke. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Can you feel the sting of those words? I mean, imagine for Peter, he went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He went from being the rock on which the church will be built to it just in a breath becoming the stumbling block that's in Jesus' way. Why does Jesus respond to Peter so harshly? Well, I would say this. That just as I think when Jesus, you know, gave him the praise that you are rock and on this rock I will be my church, he wasn't speaking just to the man Peter, but he was speaking to the confession he made, how important that confession is. In this moment, he's not just speaking to the person of Peter, but he's speaking to the temptation that is present in Peter's words. William Barclay puts it like this, and I'm going to read kind of this extended passage because I think it's so powerful. He says, in that moment, when Peter said, forbid it, Lord, in that moment, there came back to Jesus with cruel force the temptations which he had faced in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. You remember the story we read at the very beginning of Lent, the story of those temptations. There, Jesus had been tempted to take the way of power. Give them bread, give them material things, said the tempter, and they'll follow you. Give them sensations, said the tempter. Give them wonders and they'll follow you. Compromise with the world, said the tempter. Reduce your standards and they will follow you. It was precisely the same temptations with which Peter was now confronting Jesus all over again. No one wants a cross. No one wants to die in agony. The sharpness and poignancy of Jesus' answer are due to the fact that Peter was urging upon him the very things that the tempter was always whispering to him, the temptation to take another way. And what made the temptation even more acute was the fact that it came from one who loved him. Peter spoke as he did, only because he loved Jesus so much that he could not bear to think of him treading that dreadful path, dying that awful death. The hardest temptation of all is the one which comes from protecting love. Peter, out of love for his Lord, says, forbid it, Lord, never shall these things happen to you. And in those words, Jesus hears the voice of the tempter. He says, get behind me, Satan. And as sharp as those words are, there is in them a slight, small word of grace. Not just grace for Peter, but grace for us too. Because we have to be honest that sometimes we, like Peter, get it wrong too. Like we get some things right, but we get much more wrong. Sometimes we don't understand who Jesus is. We'd much rather make him into our image, have him do the things we want him to do. Our mind, like Peter, sometimes is set on human concerns not on God's concerns. So let us hear these words of grace. The words of grace are these. 
When Jesus, way back in Matthew chapter four, when he was done being tempted with, by Satan, he spoke to him a single word in Greek, hupage satana, be gone, get away from me, leave my presence, hupage, get away. But in this moment when he speaks to Peter, he doesn't repeat that same phrase. Instead, he adds a few words. He says, hupage opiso mo, hupage opiso mu, Satana, which doesn't mean be gone, it means get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. And, and that may not sound like much difference to you, but Christians as early as the second and third centuries were saying, no, these, that distinction is really important. Church Father Origen suggests that Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, your place is behind me not in front of me. It is your place to follow, to follow me in the way that I choose, not to try to lead me in the way that you would like me to go. Get behind me, Jesus is saying, so that you can follow me. And I like that, that translation, that, that interpretation, partially because it jives with the very next thing that Peter says, that Jesus says to his disciples. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus was saying to Peter and all the disciples, get behind me and follow me. And I'll show you what the Messiah truly looks like because it doesn't look like anything you would ever expect. Because my ways are not your ways and my kingdom is not your kingdom. And you'll eventually understand why, things, why all these things that I've told you, why they are necessary, because I'm building a kingdom that is different from, greater than all the kingdoms of this world. A kingdom which is open to people of all nations and ages and races. A kingdom which will endure. All the other earthly kingdoms that you know will rise and fall, rise and fall. But of my kingdom, there will be no end. He was a different kind of Messiah than what the disciples expected him to be. And the only way they could see it was to get behind and to follow. And so the question comes to us just as surely as it came to them. Who do we say that Jesus is? For what we do with Jesus to a large degree determines what Jesus can do with us. I mean, are we so busy building our own kingdom, constructing our own identity, defending our own private castle? Is that what our lives are about? Or have you ever made the confession, Jesus is Lord. You are the Messiah. And there's nothing left for me to do except take up my cross, get behind, and follow wherever you lead. That's the confession that is required of all those who would follow Jesus. And so as we go into this Holy Week, I invite you to keep your eyes open to see what kind of Messiah Jesus truly was. To follow from triumphal entry to the conflict and the temples, to go from 
upper room, the Garden of Gethsemane, from Golgotha to the empty tomb, to follow and watch and to see just how far this Messiah would go to usher in the kingdom of God.